0: This is a podcast by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Find us at k103.se.
1: Hello, and welcome back to your monthly dose of Europe, a Brännpunkt Europa podcast. I'm Magdalena Jonsson, and I'm your host today. Uh, We will discuss how EU law influences national legal systems like, for instance, Swedish law.
2: Hi, and I'm Anina Ricke, your co-host, and we are happy to welcome Andreas Moberg, Head of Centre for European Research at the University of Gothenburg, as our guest today. Welcome, Andreas.
0: Thank you. Thank you both.
2: It's great to have you here. First, would you like to introduce yourself and Sergo, Centre for European Research?
0: Of course. Um, well, I'm Andreas Mubay. I work at the Department of Law, and I'm the uh, director of Särgö since about a year and a half ago. I've been working there, and Särgö is the Center for European Research at the University of Gothenburg. And we work to help researchers. We, we, we see ourselves as a support structure for researchers in European studies who are interested in interdisciplinary research. So we try to encourage and support them in this interest.
1: Thanks again, Andreas, for coming. Now let's dive into it. Mm. The EU started in 1958. To what extent did EU law from the beginning influence national legal systems of the member states? And how has this evolved over time?
0: Wow, that's a huge question. And um, the way... Without going too deep into what EU law might be and and legal language and how law works, etc. The, the first thing to, to think about might be that when the organization was started, it was started as a clear-cut international organization, which meant that it was an organization between states, but eventually it became something else. And that would be the influence of the legal structure, I would say, and mainly because of how the court decided to interpret the rules, which made them more accessible for individuals in the various countries. So the influence has been huge. There are many answers to that question. Yeah.
2: Great. Thank you for this introduction. If we are saying that EU and national law are interlinked, can you emphasize a little further on what EU law is and how it has influenced national law? and? How do you see their relationship in the future, like what's superior, what's going to dominate, and what areas of international or national law will be influenced the most?
0: Sure, maybe the first thing to think about is to just remember what law is law is a tool to organize society. It's an instrument to achieve certain goals. These goals are decided by the legislator normally, so politics, basically. So law is an instrument for politics. So it all starts with what you want to do. It, the law does not have a will of its own, you know. So law is an instrument to achieve certain things. And, and the most important things that we have seen so far that was politically decided that it should be organized on a supranational level, that is the internal market. So it, it started as an economic endeavor to tear down barriers between states in order to make it easier to trade and then it evolved and became something slightly different and now we have a completely different organization compared to in 1958. It started with economy and then in the 90s it became more of social policy and social cohesion and identity became more important and that was also reflected in the legislation that the EU institutions took and also what the court enforced. Mm -hmm. But this is not the law expanding. Because the law does not invent its own interests; the interests are given and, and created by the people, and then Through the law is the inst- Right? Yeah. Yes. Hopefully. Yeah. Not everyone's elected, though. I mean, the judges are not elected, and they have a huge impact on how we understand the texts.
1: EU law has priority over national law. Isn't then national legislation meaningless?
0: Yeah, you're thinking about the. Priority, primacy, uh, EU law, the principle of supremacy, it has many names and and that is a legal tool in order to solve the situation where there is national legislation already in place and then there is something else from the EU legislator which seems to collide and then EU law takes precedence so we need to have we have these rules in all legal systems we have sometimes you will find conflicts between laws within us for instance the Swedish legal system and you will solve these with certain principles this is another one of those principles but it, it could be understood as if it's a competition in a way but that is not how, how you're supposed to think about it because you're supposed to think about it that there are two decisions on the same topic And we need to figure out which one is actually the one we're going to let stand or or go by and and follow. So that is basically the idea of primacy.
2: Great, thank you. In order to harmonize the member states national legal system we have a process called legal integration that uses two tools, namely directives and regulations. What does this mean and are there specific areas of national law that have been most influenced by this EU regulation and directives and why is that so?
0: Yes, that's correct. That's, that, those are what we call secondary law. And uh, I mean, the treaties, primary law, is, is also hugely important because it's in the treaties that you find the four freedoms, for instance, the free movement of capital, of, of labor, of goods, etc. That is, that is already in the treaties. So that's sort of the starting point. And then in order to make these four freedoms a reality... There needs to be measures taken. That's the harmonization that you were talking about, right? So I think that looking back, it's the economic integration that is sort of the the main feat, accomplishment of this treaty. And that was done through directives to a large extent, through regulations, but also through interpretations in the courts. So it's, um, it's these three ingredients that tear down barriers to trade and barriers to free movement basically and I think that is the main achievement of this EU legislative situation that it has been easier for goods and people to travel around within the EU.
1: Am I right when I say that agriculture is one of the most regulated areas within the EU?
0: I think you may be right. But but it, it's it's hard to say what, what is more regulated and what is less regulated. But agriculture is a huge part of the EU legal system and support for agriculture. I mean, a large part of the EU budget goes to financing agricultural support. And it's politically, it's a, it's a huge issue that the member states need to work together on. And it has been ever since the start because France was a huge agricultural nation. Yeah, so that's it.
1: Also because uh, food is such essential for sustaining life and to be um, independent on food supplies.
0: Yeah, independent if we are the EU and see ourselves as a coherent entity, then I agree. Many people would probably agree with this as well, that originally the, the reason why the EU had such a strong emphasis on agricultural policy was because France needed a market for their products. France needed to export agriculture.
1: Their wine. Yeah. (laughs) I think 33% actually of the EU budget goes to agriculture.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm.
1: So are there areas that remain unintegrated? For instance, defense and the tax system. Are there any other areas that are not integrated? Why? And do you think they will remain unintegrated?
0: The tax system is to some extent... I mean, when you say integrated, what I understand is areas where the EU can actually adopt legislation. Yes. Yeah. So, and then the level of integration varies within these fields as well. And and we talk about exclusive competence in certain areas and shared competence. And, and there are different categories as well. But... Like you say, defence, for instance, that is not part of the EU cooperation. That is up to each sovereign state. Taxes is interesting because VAT, you know, value-added tax when we buy something. Moms. Uh, moms in Swedish, yeah. That is regulated on the EU level. So that is common. And a lot a, a huge part of the EU budget comes from part of the EU budget is collected through the common VAT. So the VAT is is harmonized.
1: Is it really? I thought we had a higher VAT than many other member states. Yep. I know there are different VAT levels, but 25% is the ordinary here in Sweden and it's it's less in other
0: states. It's it's still harmonized, but you can still there is still a margin where you can decide how much VAT you want to levy on certain products. But then there are other taxes as well that are not harmonized, such as, for instance, our taxes on tobacco or alcohol in Sweden. That is not harmonized. So Sweden can have these, um, I don't know the word in English, in Swedish it's punktskat, but you can have target certain products. And raise the taxes on them. And sometimes we as consumers, we confound these different uh, taxes. But the the common VAT system is an important factor in, in the way that goods can be equally traded throughout Europe.
2: Yes, we have already spoken a lot about the internal market as like the grounding or the foundation of the EU. And we said that EU law is the crucial tool to reach such a fully harmonized internal market. So I just want to bring up like another example. How come then that Sweden is allowed to sell snus on their domestic market, whereas other EU member states are not? And when and how does this exception occur?
0: Yes, um, the snus situation is a little bit of a special case. Because when uh, Sweden entered the EU, there was actually an exception negotiated for this particular product which is called wet tobacco and that was part of the negotiation process that Sweden would still be allowed to manufacture and sell this within Sweden. Swedish producers are not allowed to export it to other outside of Sweden within the EU.
2: Right, thank you. And in contrast to the protection of public health as it would be considered when we're talking about snus, how come then that Child abuse is not prohibited EU-widely. Child abuse is still in some form allowed in the Czech Republic, Italy, Slovakia and Belgium.
0: The main reason is that the EU does not harmonize criminal law. So there is criminal law cooperation. But the actual what is actually criminal is first and foremost down to each member state. This causes problems because we have this idea of mutual recognition of each other's legal orders and there are tensions within the EU which are caused by how we view certain things differently.
1: Some EU member states are so-called donor countries which means they pay more than they get back, net, and other states are called uh, receivers. Which are these countries and for how long do you think the donor states will accept this order? Do they get compensated for it in another way than in pure money?
0: I would assume that you're part of a corporation even though you might be a net contributor if you count in a certain way because we have to remember that these figures, I'm well aware that we talk about Sweden being a net donor, for instance, Germany probably as well. Um, Almost
1: all the Western countries, yeah. actually, and the former Eastern bloc. Are, yeah, are for receipts. obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. The, I
0: mean, the standard of living mm. is different. The the budgets are different. The the BN, uh, what's the word GDP is different, etc. So my thinking on this is that if, even though you might be a net contributor. That would be the result of a calculation where you attribute certain value to certain things and then you end up doing the maths and then you see that it's sort of, yeah. But if Sweden still participates and feels that there are benefits for the access to the internal market, being a very export dependent country, I'm pretty sure that it's possible to, with the economics, explain why Sweden gains from being a member compared to being outside even though they might be a net contributor in most calculations. Yeah,
1: so so I'm digging a little bit after those benefits. What are the other benefits that in a way compensates?
0: Yeah, the the classical answer, and and I believe that a lot of this is true, the classical answer is access to a huge market. I mean, the the original idea for, for starting the corporation in the first place, if you are a country that exports mainly, and if the people you trade with are sort of your closest neighbors, then it makes sense not to levy a lot of charges for selling your stuff on their markets. So in order, because the producers in Sweden will lose money, the stuff they want to sell in a different state will be more expensive than the domestically produced goods, which means that they will probably not sell as much. So even though Sweden as a sort of company, the state Sweden budget might be contributing net, the Swedish companies who export stuff they gain a lot. This is the logic.
1: So paradoxically, some research show that the already rich countries gain more from the European collaboration than the weaker countries, which is the um, paradox to what I just asked.
0: Yeah, but not if you, it's not a paradox if you reason the way I I tried to reason. Because it is a paradox if you just look at the numbers with donors, etc. But I mean, it's, it's just the example of this is the ...product of market economy, one could argue that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, because it's the survival of the fittest in a way. It's, it's not necessarily true. I mean, you could also use market economy in a sort of a governed way to, to make... I mean, market economists, they will tell you that the general growth is higher within a market economy than within a planned economy... But you will still see the examples that the the richer, at least it looks like that in, in the Western liberal market economy system, that the richer get richer and the poorer get poorer.
1: So the disparities are increasing. I think
0: that free trade with regulations is good for growth. But this with regulations is very difficult to to see what is the appropriate amount of of control and and sort of governance and redistribution because we have to remember one very important thing that we haven't said. There is no common tax base in the EU. So there is no tax redistribution within the whole EU because like you were already talking about. Except the VAT yeah but but that is such a small part of, of the whole thing the, the income tax is is the big thing from companies probably uh, i don't have the numbers here but but the redistribution of tax funds is done in each state on their own
1: talking about the economic integration during the euro crisis 2009 the eu was close to a collapse the eu stood unprepared to such huge uh, financial debt crisis and uh, the whole euro system was threatened there were massive citizen protests resulting in, yeah, the whole union was under threat. Is there a risk that any crisis like that could happen again and result in a collapse of the European Union?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, there's always a risk of, of crisis. I think that we are experiencing crisis very easily these days. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't want to trivialize the euro situation, but uh, nor the pandemic, nor nothing like it. But It's very easy that people start thinking crises nowadays, but uh, the euro situation was a good example of what happens when you have certain instruments like um, the central bank controls certain things within the euro economy, but you don't have all the instruments. I'm no economist, and they would probably explain this better than I can. But when you don't have control of the tax base, it's very difficult to administer the redistribution of the wealth within the system. And I think that was probably part of the the euro crisis as well. The main reason, probably one of the main reasons, was that there were huge budget deficits in certain countries, but they were all tied to the same currency. And when you have budget deficiency in, in a state, your currency becomes susceptible to speculation from other states and it all becomes a very problematic situation and it's weak and uh, yeah since the the central bank of the euro does not control the state budgets i mean this would somebody with the economics background would do the, explain this much better than i can but when the european central bank controls the sort of inflation situation but do not control the budgets of each eu member state then you have a very strange situation, actually.
1: So, lack of economic integration actually creates Im- imbalances in,
0: in yes, the whole system. I think the uh, I think most economics economists would um, agree that if the European Central Bank had had more power over the actual euro and the not just the currency but also the state finances within these member states, then you could probably have had a different situation.
2: Talking about the Euro, if new nations become EU members, is it mandatory for them to join the Eurozone as well? And a second question, will NATO come in the package deal in the future, do you think?
0: Well, uh, to start with the second, I don't think NATO will ever become part of the package deal, but I think that a lot of potential new members will want to join NATO as well. So I think that it won't matter too much to them, but I don't think that NATO will NATO membership will ever be a condition to join the EU. And that has to do with the EU being an organization of sovereign states, which you will have certain states that want to control their own defense, like we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier, on their own. But um, if we think about the euro, the way the euro works is that the rules in the treaty state that when a member state fulfills the criteria to join the common currency, the euro, then they have an obligation to do so. It's not a condition to join that you have to fulfill the criteria, but it's kind of implicitly Hmm. because you need to do certain things and you need to have certain things in order that if if you're deemed to be able to join the EU, you probably meet most of the euro criteria. But Sweden is a good example here because Sweden used to fulfill the criteria. I don't know. I'm not updated on this, but... I I would guess that we, well, maybe not now, I, I really don't know. But for many years, we definitely fulfilled the euro criteria and thus we were obliged to join, but no one really forced us. Mm. It was uh, one of those things where the commission could have said, you have to join the euro, but how are they going to enforce that? It's not going to happen with a referendum in Sweden that said no, etc. So the political situation would have been impossible to to reconciliate, I think.
2: In 1985, Greenland left the European community, short EC, as it was called at that time. And in 2020, Great Britain left as well. Is there any other country or even countries that might potentially apply to leave as well soon? And why?
0: Wow. I mean, okay. There is this uh, secession treaty between Greenland and... um, I mean, Greenland is not a state. So it's it's a different situation. But the UK, of course, left the EU. But... uh, Who's next? I think I would be surprised if someone leaves within, I don't know, how many years. Uh, I would be surprised to hear discussion of leaving within the next decade, let's say that. But I think that what we will see is what is sometimes called, um, in French they say l'Europe à a- différentes vitesses, so it's like a different geared integration so we will have different tiers of commitments to the european union so we will have like uh, three different teams within the eu for instance who are differently integrated so i think we're moving towards that so it will be kind of a halfway step from leaving that we will not have certain commitments we will only be sort of in on certain issues certain matters and not all The way it's been discussed is that certain states have opted for, and there are possibilities already in the treaty, that if a a group of states want to move further and integrate more in a certain field, the treaty allows that. So already it's possible to have this differentiated integration. That's
1: deharmonization in my point of view.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that, yeah.
1: The most EU-critical EU member states are Poland and Hungary. Right. How come they don't leave if they're so Well, are they?
0: Who is the state? I mean, if if we talk about the governments, yeah, sure. I agree that they're the most critical. But if we talk about support for EU, if we look at sort of various public support uh, measurements, Poland is definitely not one of the EU critics, I would guess that if you measure, I haven't looked at this for a long time, but I wouldn't be surprised if the figures are lower for Sweden for support for the EU than Poland in public support. I don't know.
1: It's about to wrap things up here. But Andreas, is this something that you would like to add that you think that we should have asked you about? Or is this something that you want to tell the students of Gothenburg University before we end up?
0: Oh, probably a lot. I I think be uh, be on the lookout. Look in... One thing that I want everyone to think about is this traditional thing. When ministers of your government come back from Brussels and say they decided something, you have to remember that they were also part of the decision. It's not us and them just when you want to. It's always us. So you cannot just by that a Swedish minister goes to Brussels comes back and say oh they in Brussels they decided this because the Swedish representative was part of the decision you know it's not just when things turn out the way they want to that it's okay to participate and work in the EU. They're always in the EU. So remember that when you look at the debate and remember it during the spring because you have to go and vote for the European Parliament elections which are coming up. That is important.
1: Yes, it is. Andreas, it's been great to have you here. It's unfortunately time to wrap things up. In today's episode of your monthly dose of Europe, we have discussed the relationship between national law and EU law with Associate Professor Andreas Mulberry. Head of Center of European Research at Gothenburg University.
2: Thank you so much, Andreas Moberg, for contributing to our podcast with your expertise. It was great to have you here. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. We look forward to having you back for our next episode. Until then, stay engaged, stay informed.
1: You have listened to your monthly Dose of Europe, a Brempunkt Europa podcast. This podcast is a collaboration between Brempunkt Europa and K103 Student Radio, Gothenburg University.
0: You've just heard a podcast by K103, Gothenburg Student Radio. You'll find all our shows at k103.se. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned.